Our reading is from the 24th chapter of the first book of Samuel. You remember that Jesus invited us to become like little children. And when we were little children, many of us were read stories by our parents. And before we went to bed and we would close our eyes and we just imagine these stories in our mind's eye. This is a really wonderful story, complete story. And I think it'd be great if, um, if you don't want to follow it on the screen, you might want to, but you could close your eyes and just listen and just imagine yourself as David in this cave and with his friends. And I've done that. I tend to do that when I hear a story. And it makes it so much more alive and becomes real. So imagine yourself there, part of this story. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. 
When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Can everybody hear me? I'm looking at Sarah to do the wave. Thank you. Dealing with conflict, it's not about me. Last Sunday, John took us through the story of Martha and Mary, and he drew out some key points to help us deal with conflict. And today we're continuing with that theme. A while ago, a new mum brought her baby into work. And no work was done for the next half hour as the staff and patients cooed and fussed over the new little one. The baby had a T-shirt on. And on it was written the phrase, it's all about me. And of course, for a tiny baby, it is all about them, isn't it? Remembering when my two were small, it was all about feeding, changing, clearing up sick, just simply being with them, gazing at them wondrously. But as time passes, babies grow, and they learn that life doesn't always revolve around them. They learn the give and take of relationships. They hopefully learn from those around them how to form healthy, life-enhancing friendships, how to relate to others at school, in society, at work, and with the huge number of people that we come across throughout life. But shopping for clothes a few weeks ago, I spied a T-shirt. It wasn't for a child this time, but it was for an adult, and it had the same logo. It's all about me, emblazoned in sequins and glitz across the front. And somehow, behavior that's become acceptable, or sorry, behavior that's acceptable and healthy in a tiny baby has become a status symbol in our adult culture. It could be caused, called the spirit of our age. It's all about me. The narcissistic trait that always puts me at the center. And social commentators have come up with an assortment of views as to why this is. The cult of individualism, of celebrity, of consumerism, of political influence, and all sorts of other reasons. But actually, this story that we've just read from Samuel tells us that the same attitudes, the it's all about me culture, was around 3,000 years ago. 
It just wasn't expressed in glitz and t-shirts. And as we read the story of David and Saul that starts a few chapters earlier, we start to see that for Saul, it was all about him. The repeated cry we hear from his heart is, my needs, my wants. He might have been an obvious recipient of the card I found last week. Cameron's putting the words up on the screen so you can see it. When they discover the center of the universe, a lot of people will be surprised to discover that they're not it. Saul, driven by his own fear and paranoia and jealousy towards David, got to the place where all he wanted to do was murder him. The drive consumed him, dictated his choices for years and robbed his people and his nation of the good that he might have done, robbed him of his relationship with God. And for David, yes, sometimes it was all about him. He sinned big time, didn't he? But the Bible tells us he had a different spirit. Ultimately, for David, God was the center of his universe. And in Acts 13:22, we're reminded of what God said about David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And so here we catch up with them in the wilderness, both metaphorically in the wilderness of broken relationship and conflict and physically in the wilderness surrounding En Gedi. The wilderness of the Bible is so often a liminal space a place where ordinary life is suspended and new possibilities emerge. And although the wilderness can be a place of danger and temptation, it can also be a place for nourishment and revelation from God. I know that the times of wilderness in my life have been so often a place where my character has been shaped and tested, a place of facing up to sin, of cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit, and of renewal and healing and moving on with God. But the wilderness comes with a warning sign. Don't get stuck here. I think very few of us deliberately set out to live in conflict with each other. And the reasons why conflict develops are many and varied. I only have a staff of seven at work, but at times it seems that there's always some disagreement, some source of conflict running around the building. Sometimes it's big issues that need careful handling and considered action and response. But sometimes, like the one that developed over the summer about whose responsibility it was to change the loo roll in the staff toilet, I feel like throwing my hands up and saying, get a life. But having said that, the bill for loo rolls plummeted because I think some of them were rationing themselves to one square each so they didn't come to the end of the roll and have to change it. <laughs> there are times, aren't there, when as we work through conflict with integrity and prayer, that we come to a better place. The resolution of conflict moves us forward. But at its worst, conflict can diminish us. It saps us of energy. It takes our focus away from the good things in our lives. 
Eventually, the disagreement and conflict start to consume us. People take sides, armies get built, and the darkest demonic side of conflict emerges. Relationships break down, families get torn apart, businesses fail, churches are in turmoil, and godly ministries are rendered impotent. And you know, over the years, as I sat with men and women as their therapist and journeyed with them as they struggled to rebuild their lives and their faith shattered through conflict, the profoundness of their pain, the destructive impact these events have, the way men and women and family and churches have been robbed of the best God has for them, has at times reduced me to tears. But then I've sensed his heart, the compassionate heart of God reaching out toward them as broken hearts are made whole, are healed, and captives are set free to walk the road of discipleship with Jesus once again. Do you remember these pictures which Cameron's going to put up? I hope you can see them. It's Brown and Blair, Mandela and Tutu. These pictures have something in common. They're both pictures of relationships that started out full of hope. I don't suppose either Brown or Blair thought that their relationship would get to the stage we see portrayed here and that so many would get hurt and damaged in the fallout. But so much of how we relate to one another is patterned by our life experiences through childhood and beyond. Our families, our work environment, our aspirations, our ambitions, our education, and many other things all shape us, give us patterns of thought and behavior. There's good news, though. God breaks through the mold we create for ourselves by coming and dwelling within us. And the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit start to reshape us and mold us to his image. But it takes time, doesn't it? He doesn't wave some sort of spiritual magic wand and, hey, presto, there we are. He takes us on a journey. For Brown and Blair, even though both men are Christians, the conflict continues. But for Bishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela, the journey led to a very different place, one that could bring a hurt and damaged nation to forgiveness and reconciliation and give the world statesmen the like of which are all too rare. If the paparazzi had been around in Saul and David's time, I wonder what the picture they all would have wanted would have been. More like Brown and Blair, I suspect. As they hid in the cave, David's men saw an opportunity. They were quick to encourage David to harm Saul, to murder him. They urged him to follow a natural instinct, to fight back. They even distorted what God had said to David in support of their cause, and herein lies a warning for us. Once the wheels of conflict and disagreement start to turn, how easy it is to distort the truth, to bend it in our favour, and to only see what we want to see and miss the bigger picture. So David gets carried along by the mood of his men and creeps forward to cut a piece off Saul's robe. 
And then his conscience starts to speak. He knows he's stepped out of God's purpose. He hadn't seen Saul the man, but Saul the enemy. It wasn't for him to harm Saul. God hadn't given him that authority. David should have resisted harming Saul. And as we read on, David makes the first move towards reconciliation. He steps forward out of the cave. This is what Desmond Tutu said of Nelson Mandela when he stepped out of the cave of his Robin Island prison. Before Nelson Mandela was arrested in 1962, he was an angry, relatively young man. He founded ANC's military wing. When he was released, he surprised everyone because he was talking about reconciliation and forgiveness and not about revenge. In times of conflict, do we look past the circumstances to see the person, to see the child of God? Do we step out of the cave, trusting ourselves to God, being obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of Scripture? Allow the grace of God to flow through our life to touch another? Because as David stepped out of the cave, he surprised his followers He spoke honestly to Saul, not to Saul the murderer, but to Saul the man. He stepped out in humility, trusting in God. For just a moment, the two men saw each other as people, created in the image of God, not as enemy, not as a potential killer. David prostrated himself before Saul and in humility challenges the rumours that others have been feeding Saul. He confronts the lies that Saul has been believing and dismantles the misconceptions by speaking the truth in love. And then David holds up the piece of cloth he cut from Saul's cloak. There's another time in the story of Saul that we read about a piece of cloth from a cloak. In 1 Samuel 15, we're told how Saul is rejected as king by God because he rejected the word of God. In verses 27 and 28, we read, As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And here... As Saul sees David holding a piece of cloak, he at last acknowledges God's plan. There's a sense, isn't there, of coming back to the same place. A piece of cloak. The circle is complete. The plan that Samuel had spoken of years before as Saul held on to the piece of cloak he had grabbed from Saul has at last hit home as he sees David holding a piece of cloak. David has been chosen by God to be king. I don't know about you, but as I look back over the years, I see a pattern. There are times when I realize that God has brought me round in a circle, back to a place I've visited before, to hurts and attitudes that I've buried or ignored in the hope that nobody will spot them. And then he challenges me again. And again, and again, until at last I get it. And then he lovingly brings me back face to face once again with the heart of the problem. 
He gives me the opportunity to walk a different path this time. And so it was for Saul that day. Here was an opportunity to choose a different path, a path to resolution, to the restoration of a friendship, to reconciliation. You know, as John reminded us last week, in any group of people, there will be disagreement at times. There'll be the potential for relationships to go wrong, the potential for conflict, but it's how we handle it that matters. A few months ago, someone said something to me, quite innocuously. In itself, the remark was harmless, but there was something about the circumstances at that particular time that triggered off a reaction within me. And so the relationship between us started to deteriorate. Something that started so small grew like topsy in my mind. Eventually, my conscience didn't just prickle, it shouted. This needs to be sorted. And I knew I was the one who needed to initiate the process, to make the first move, to say sorry. I argued quite who I was arguing with, I don't know. I tried to justify. I tried the, what about them, red herring? I couldn't or didn't want to see a way forward, but God had it in hand. Eventually, just before I went to the retreat in June, I came to a place where I knelt before God and acknowledged my sin, asked God to forgive me, committed myself to pursue reconciliation and to cause the other person no harm in what I said or did, but instead to do good. And I knew then that he, our loving Lord and Saviour, had it in hand and would show me the way. At the beginning of the summer, I really wanted to go to Soul Survivor, but... I'm sorry, there's no way. I'm sleeping in a tent, in a field, having to walk over to the shower block, which is communal, I gather, clutching my toilet bag and my towel. And then the final straw, have to sit on the floor in the big tent for the meetings. Mind you, if Cameron's put the picture up, I'd happily camp in one of these. Who wants to come with me? <laughs> But this year, the very week I was off work, Soul Survivor was broadcast live on God TV. So I went to Soul Survivor. Or rather, God saw to it that Soul Survivor came to me, sitting on my sofa, nice glass of red wine in one hand for the evening meeting, cosy bed to sleep in, croissants and fresh coffee for breakfast during the morning meeting, very civilised, cafe church for me. And as an added bonus, everyone was away, so I had the house to myself. But one evening, as I listened to Mike Pilavachi, the light dawned, big time. I realised what it was that had made me react the way I did. It had little to do with the current circumstances, but a lot to do with something that I had been ignoring for years. And God had brought me back around to that place again and said, it's time to face up to this. 
and over the summer it seemed that everything I read or listened to spoke into that situation. Move me a little bit further along the road of letting go and accepting his healing and his lordship in my life, making me more aware of the damage I had caused. And to see the current situation, the current breakdown in relationship for what it was without the lens of the past. Then one day it was D-Day. It was time to step out of the cave, time to go open-handed and in humility to the other person and ask forgiveness and to look for reconciliation. And so graciously, it and I was accepted. But for Saul, though, we read, that's not what happened. For a brief moment, there was a glimmer of hope as each of them agreed to do good for and to each other. But that hope was lost as Saul stepped back on the same path to destruction as before. There was to be no reconciliation, no opportunity for God to work for good in Saul's life. And David, for his own safety, went back to the life of a fugitive. And so for us, for those times when we know we need to put things right with someone else, As we deal with conflict in our relationships, we can sometimes be so quick to identify the hurts others have caused us and the pain and the misunderstanding that we feel that they've inflicted upon us. But we can be so unaware that we repeat patterns from our past and so slow to acknowledge our part in what's happening. And we can forget the sacred truth that we are all created in God's image, that Christ redeemed and purchased each one of us. We don't need a PowerPoint picture to understand this, do we? We've already got one permanently in brick on the wall behind me. We see it every time we come in here. And as we look at the cross, consider areas of conflict, the words that are going to come up alongside Hopefully. (laughs) Thank you. The words that are going to come up alongside, drawn from this cameo in the lives of Saul and David, suggest a way forward. Remind us again of the points John made last week. The cross tells us that if we can see past the hurt, If we can come to a place of forgiveness, of doing no harm to each other, but instead doing good, of making the first move, of pursuing godly resolution, of looking for reconciliation, then we will start to sense the heart of God. And then we will want to reach out to allow the grace of God to flow through us. And as we do, we will experience God's healing touch within us. We will understand what God is doing in each of our lives. As John reminded us last week, it's not always an easy process. It's not always an easy road to travel, but it's one that will lead us into freedom and deeper relationship with each other and with our God. And he will build us into a people a people that he will continue to use for good. How does God 
use us for good? The obvious answer is that it's all about Jesus. But Jesus also tells us that if we love him, then we'll do what he says. We will love our God with all our hearts and we will love our neighbours as ourselves. And we'll take seriously his great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. It's not about me. It's all about you, Jesus, says the song. You know, I quite often think that here in Shrewsbury, we miss out sometimes on what God is doing in our country. I wonder, in the 30 years I've lived here, how many folk have become disciples of Jesus? How many people have come to discipleship in Jesus because of me? People have been praying for years for a revival to come to Shrewsbury, but we're still longing to see him move in power in our town. But elsewhere in the country, the Holy Spirit is on the move, and my prayer is that here, in this place, we won't miss out on what God is doing. There are churches that are experiencing real growth through conversions. Black-led churches are growing at an exponential rate. An Anglican church in southern England grew from a plant of 20 to 400 in six months. People are being healed, restored, set free, forgiven. Last week, I went on an outing to a church in Mid Wales for a baptismal service and a coffee and a cake in their car park. And each of the nine candidates told how Jesus had met them. Some had just been walking past the church and had felt drawn in. Some had come through friendship with Christians. Some had come because they'd reached a point of such desperation that they had nowhere else left to turn. Ordinary folk the sort of people we rub shoulders with every day, the sort of people that live in the houses that surround our church, surround our homes, the sort of people we meet through our interests and hobbies, folk just like these. Over the years, Tim has shared his heart with us to be a missional community reaching out to those around us, embedded in Jesus, so that we can then be a light in our community, Jesus' light, offering his light and hope to others, to be a godly community of believers. We have the wonderful art artwork in our foyer with our values on, and Cameron's put it up for us. It tells us what we want to be, what it means for us to be God's community here in this place. Each one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, has a God-ordained part in God's purposes for us here at Christ Church, Baston Hill. And it's happening. Maybe not as much as we'd like, but it is happening. And there are folk who are going to come into the kingdom of God, who are going to be restored and healed here, in this town, in this village, in this church. Amen. Amen. But the question I've been asking myself recently is how prepared am I to kneel 
in humility before God and say, it's absolutely not about me. It's all about you, Lord. It's absolutely about walking in the truth of the gospel with all it demands. It's about journeying together. It's about sorting out our disagreements. It's about the great commission to go and make disciples. To see this church filled with new believers. And am I, are we prepared to pay the cost and in humility say, not I, but Christ. It's all about what you want, Lord, what you want in every area of our lives. Amen. If you'd like to stand, we're going to just respond in song to that.